you know, contrasts are uh, often used for emphasis. Uh, it's uh, something that, that, that pits one thing against another, and, and it helps you to understand the significance of that thing that's, that's the point. For example, John F. Kennedy once said, ask not what, I think there's a, a missing slide. He says, ask not what, you can do, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. President Kennedy wanted to focus people's attention on the sacrifice that was necessary. And he did that by contrasting it with selfishness. The sacrifice makes it it's more evident. The need is, is more apparent when it's contrasted with the selfishness. Uh, there's uh, another consideration, another example you could consider. This picture, it shows uh, two sides of a fence. On one side, you've got this uh, high-rise condo building. Every condo with just their single family in it has its own hanging gardens and pool. A and then on the other side of the fence, you've got a very different living condition. I mean, it's such that, that people end up in uh, multi-family living conditions where you've got extended family living in two or three rooms. A and then you've got limited access to water and electricity. A and there's probably a higher incidence of crime and I mean, nobody, nobody has their own pool. You can see the difference between the wealth and the poverty when the contrast is side by side. It makes it more apparent. Well, John uses a contrast as he begins his uh, gospel. And, and he's got this, it's a dramatic contrast. It's something so significant that I think we often just brush over. But it's, it's worth stopping and noticing the, the point that John is making. John uses this simple word, literally the word. He, he, makes, he makes this word uh, divinified. You know how you personify a word? Well, this is divinified. He, he's saying that the word was all these amazing things. And then he contrasts it with what happens next. But let's just look at what he says about the word first. He says that the word was in the beginning, before there was anything uh, else, before time existed, there was the word. He says that all things were created through the word. So the word is the creator, God. In the word is life, John says. And, and then he says the word, very clearly, the word is God. So this is the big part. That's the, the, the significant contrast. This would be like the wealthy side of that fence. And, and then John walks us through a problem. Because when we see God in all his glory, in all his fantasticness, in all his power, in all his transcendence, then we have a hard time understanding him. In John 1, 5, uh, John recognizes this problem. He says, uh, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. Some versions say that the darkness didn't overcome it as though that the darkness was trying to overcome it. Uh, but I, I think that the, the better translation is how the New King James translated it. The darkness didn't comprehend the light. It didn't make sense. We couldn't grasp it. Uh, I've always... Uh, I've always thought of this verse as being Jesus' ministry after he became flesh. You know, this is Jesus on the earth doing his work. And, and the people saw Jesus and they said, no, we don't want you. And they hung him on a cross. But I, as I've explored this passage more, I think, no, this is Jesus, this is God, before he became flesh. You see, God was in the world 
He was doing stuff before he ever came as a human, but we didn't really grasp it. He says, uh, John says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Like that's the he was going to become flesh um, idea. But then he says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, didn't comprehend, it didn't make sense. Um, there's uh, a ver- not a verse, a, uh, a video that the Bible Project created. Have you heard of the Bible Project? I've mentioned it before. It's a... Um, a nonprofit group that are making animated videos about different Bible themes, and they, they take a, a whole book of the Bible and they try to understand it. Well, they made one that's just about this Trinity idea, the, the one, three in oneness of God. And uh, we're going to watch just the first minute of it or so to uh, explore this idea of our challenge in understanding God. So I've got a question that's always a problem. The Bible says there's one God, but in other parts of the Bible, God is three, Could Father, we? Son, and Spirit. Could we try something? Can, can you um, make sure the plug is plugged in all the way to the wall and, and maybe unplug it and plug it back into the computer? It, it's kind of hard to hear it that way, isn't it? Yeah, you're good? I think we have a problem. Well, go ahead and turn the, turn the sound okay. off. I'll, I'll, I'll describe it a little bit. So all throughout the Bible, you have these different ideas of God. Um, sometimes he's one and sometimes he's three. Um, and in order to understand this complexity of having this God illustrated in different ways, you need to think about humankind as existing on a 2D plane, like a sheet of paper. Um, and, and then there's God, and, and God's like this 3D object. And, and as he passes through the plane of our existence, we see parts of him. At one time, it looks like there's maybe one. And another part, it might look like there's, there's two or, or even three. The reality of God hasn't changed, but our ability to perceive him is limited by the plane of our existence. And that, that problem is all throughout the Bible. It's described in, in different ways. And, uh, and it's a, uh, an interesting challenge that we have. You see, God is he's so transcendent that he's literally beyond our capacity to understand. And, and so God, he's wanting us to encounter him, but we have this limited perspective. And so all throughout the Bible, we see different aspects of who God is in different ways and different characteristics. And, and we get a little bit better understanding of him. And that idea of encountering God, it's all throughout the Bible. It's God's desire for us to encounter him. But the problem is <coughs> when we don't understand him, he has to result he has to, to resort to something besides just revealing himself and all his glory. Uh, he was there in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, but then they sinned, and so he had to separate himself so that they wouldn't be destroyed. And ever since then, he's been pursuing us, trying to bring us back into an encounter with him, his presence. And, and then he, uh, he sends prophets, he sends angels, he sends visions, and the, the people, they turn his creation into idols. 
Uh, they kill his prophets. They use the own self-interested uh, interpretations of his visions for their, for their own glory. They mess with God, and, and as a result, they live in darkness instead of in light. It's like God's magnificent glory is, is, is being comprehended or tried to comprehend by this human 2D plainness, you know, this existence that we have. And, and we say, you know what, we don't understand it, so let's just, let's just put it aside. And so, God becomes flesh. John 1.14 is the, the focus of our Christmas According to John series. And uh, last week, uh, Pastor Jeff talked about the Word. And we, we have this idea about the Word that's it's beautiful. And, and when you look at this, uh, this verse, uh, the Word in all its beauty and all its glory and all its power does something super significant. This is, God, this is John's contrast. The Word, God, Creator, ever-existing one became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice the so that portions of this verse. He became flesh so that he could dwell among us. He became flesh so that we could see his glory. He became flesh so that we can experience his grace and his truth. This week we're talking about the word becoming flesh. What does it mean that uh, the word became flesh? It, I, I just want to point out this is not God's last ditch effort to connect with us. Even though his desire has been to connect with us all along and he's done the, these different things, this is not his last ditch effort. This is his plan all along. From the very beginning, this was part of God's plan that, that he would become flesh. This this idea, the word became flesh, is, uh, it needs to be, what is flesh? It needs to be fleshed out, you know what I mean? <laughs> we, we need to understand this, this word because John uses it, I think, intentionally. It's not an accident that he uses flesh when he says what happened to the word because he could have he said something different. He's, he could have said, and, and uh, the word became a human being, right? Now, in the Old Testament, the word is basar, the Hebrew, and in the New Testament, the Greek word is sarks. And, and in both the Old and the New Testament, these two words are used in just a very few ways, and they're very, used very similarly. Um, so let's look at, at just a, a few of them. The first is the physical body. Um, the, the flesh is a, a person, the whole being, the physicalness of a person. And without a doubt, John is saying that God became a human. There's no question. Divinity put on humanity. And, and when you think about that, you have to recognize that it's our skin and bones. Our, our, uh, not, not just our skin and bones, but, but also our needs and vulnerabilities and, and, and in limitations. Uh, he also put on our desires and passions and interests. I think we need to be careful because he stayed divine. And so I think some people would have us see Jesus as uh, a human that, um, that had every, uh, the, the fun word is propensity to sin that we do. 
And uh, we get into all these discussions about the nature of God, the nature of Jesus before, after the fall, and all this kind of stuff. So I, I think we need to be careful that, that we recognize who Jesus is. He's God, but he also is, he's one of us. He puts on humanness. He became one of our kind, not this three-dimensional God that's beyond our plane of understanding, but the 2D human that, that can e experience life with us, and we can experience life with him. Uh, but the other way that Sarks and Basar are translated is, uh, or how it's used, is uh, to describe a family relationship. Just think about uh, Adam when he sees Eve. He's looked at all the other animals, and he can tell, no, that, that, that's not part of me. Nope, I don't have stripes. Nope, I don't have a tail. Um, nope, no scales on me. And then finally he sees Eve, and he says, ah, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You're my family. You're part of me. I think John was intending that meaning as well. You see, when Jesus came to this earth, we're able to look at him and say, ah, he's one of us. He's part of our family. And Jesus, I think, is able to say to us, you're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You're my family. There's uh, another way that it's used. Flesh is food. It's the kind of thing that you put on your table. Obviously, it's, it's, it's a, the meat of an animal. When we say flesh, we're not talking about you know, the, the flesh of a peach. Uh, <laughs> we're talking about animal food, but, but it's food. And, and I thought about this, and at first I, I had to, dis I mean, I thought, no, this is not, this isn't reality. This is not what John is thinking when he's saying that Jesus became flesh. And then I thought, wait, didn't Jesus say that you have to eat me? That was an interesting thought. John 6, 51, I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So I, I had, to, had to admit, maybe John was thinking about that. I mean, it is in John that he quotes Jesus saying this. So maybe, maybe John was thinking about this kind of flesh too when he said that the word became flesh. It's like John is squeezing every last morsel of metaphor out of this word flesh that he can. And he's not even done yet. He goes on. And, oh, I, I, I guess I... I that one. He goes on to say, uh, I think, compare this idea of flesh with the sin offering. There's certain places in the Bible where the, the sin offering is, is used um, or, or talked about as flesh. And, uh, and of course, we know this. Jesus is the, he's the sacrifice. He's the lamb on the burnt uh, altar of burnt offering. Jesus is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He's the lands, Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Uh, these aren't new ideas to us, and so it's pretty obvious that John would be suggesting this. But I'd just like to add a nuance that I think John might have been considering when he shared this particular phrasing, the word became flesh. And it comes from a, a verse in Leviticus chapter 6, verses 26 and 27. It says, the priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. This is the lamb, and it's a sin offering specifically. In a holy place it shall be eaten. In the court of the tent of meeting, whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it is splashed in a holy place. 
So not all sin offerings were done this way. Some offerings were on the burnt altar burnt offering and their blood was taken into the holy place, but they weren't supposed to be eaten. But God had a very specific, uh, I think, ap- uh, connection that he was making between the sin offering and Jesus. And I think John picks up on this. And, and he suggests that there's this, there's this sacrifice that's eaten and not burned. It's boiled and then eaten. And, uh, and it's a priest who eats it. And I, I had to think about it a little while. And I have not come to a resolution, so we're not going to talk about it too much. But Jesus is the sacrifice that's boiled and eaten. And he's uh, the priest. I, I don't know how it all works. Um, we're not going to get into that. But, but there's a little phrase in the mix here that I think is super significant because Jesus' life illustrates this one point so well. And it's that phrase that, that where it says, whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. Something about this sin offering um, makes things holy. And uh, th- this idea of holiness is all throughout the Bible and it's, it's uh, used to describe the utter uniqueness of something. It's, it's like the, the, the holy thing is so different and, and set apart, separate from everything else. And, and God, of course, is the most unique and most set apart thing in all of existence. Uh, you could compare God's holiness to the sun. The sun gives us light, and as a result, we have life, right? If there was no light, if there was no warmth from the sun, then there would be no life on earth. And, and yet, if you were to, to go and take a tour of the sun, uh, how long would you last? Uh, the, and and it, the, the closer you get to the sun, the hotter it is. It's like there's these concentric rings of holiness, and we're bathed in the holiness of the sun. I'm not saying that we should worship the sun. Please don't misunderstand. Um, but, but the earth is bathed in the, the warm rays of the sun. But if we get, if we get too close, then we're just going to dissolve and melt away because the sun is so powerful and so awesome. And so there's this, this, this power and life and, and, and uniqueness. The sun is holy in a sense. In a similar way, God is holy. God is the source of, of life, uh, and yet he's also dangerously powerful. Uh, you hear stories like Moses. He gets near the burning bush. And when Moses is near the burning bush, what does God say? Take your shoes off. Don't come any closer. Take your shoes off. The ground, even the dirt that's near the holy God becomes holy. And, and then you also have the stories of uh, the temple. And God says to the priests, don't come into my, my tabernacle with uncleanness on you. Of course, in the Bible, the idea of clean versus unclean, holy, unholy, it's, it's connected to uh, sin and death and sickness. So if, if you're sick and I touch you, then I could get sick, right? That's just a, a real thing. But the sickness also has a spiritual connection to sin. Sin has brought sickness. And so anybody who touches sickness has to go through a ritual purification. It's also good for your body to clean yourself too. But, but you, this ritual cleansing illustrates the, the holiness of God and the need for us to, to not be in a sinful state when we enter God's presence. 
Because if we're in this sinful state, spiritually, we'll be destroyed by God. I'd like to show you a video. I don't think it's going to work. So later in the scriptures, it's not going to work. Go ahead and turn the sound off. We'll watch the video and I'll talk about it. So in Isaiah's time, this idea, normally you'd come into the presence of God, you have to be clean. Isaiah gets this vision and he's in the throne room of heaven and he's afraid. And he's like, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and, and uh, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And he's thinking about this spiritual uncleanness. And so an, a seraphim goes to the altar and brings a coal and it touches the lips of Isaiah. And this is a unique thing. He says, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So now, it's not that he's coming into the sanctuary unclean and, and all this stuff that he's brought with him will make the sanctuary unclean or will cause him death. Now, the sanctuary is passing on its cleanness, its holiness to Isaiah. So now Isaiah becomes clean because of his connection with the sanctuary. And, and this begins a train of thought in the Bible that's, that's new, it's unique. Um, in uh, Ezekiel, the temple is said to have this river of life coming out from the temple. And it, and it expands and keeps growing and growing until it's all throughout the earth and life is popping up everywhere until the whole earth is new because of this river of life. The temple now becomes not the place where you have to make sure you're clean to get into, but the place that cleanness comes out of and, and everybody starts to become holy because of the, the temple's holiness. And you start to realize as Ezekiel goes on and, and, and then other Bible prophets talk about this, this is about Jesus. Jesus is this temple and, and he becomes God in person on earth and everything he touches becomes clean. Everything is transformed. If you're dead, you become alive because Jesus touches you. Jesus is this sin offering. He's that coal from the altar. He's that temple. And everything that touches him becomes holy. But it's not just what touches him that becomes holy. It's also whatever beholds him. Think about the, the um, serpent that Moses held up in the wilderness. Look and live was the, the statement. And, and everything, everyone that beholds Jesus is, is transformed by him. He says that uh, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. And then, of course, right there in John 1, verse 12, he says to all who receive him, who believe on his name. So touch him. The woman, the woman with the flow of blood, she touches his garment and she's clean. She can attest to the value of touching Jesus. Look at Jesus believe in Jesus. And, and he says that he's given them the right to be the children of God just by believing in his name. You'll notice that John doesn't use the word holy in this verse. He doesn't say, by believing on his name, you'll be holy. He says, by believing on his name, you'll become children. It's like one step, one step further. It's obviously encapsulating this idea of holiness, but it's also, it's also using the metaphor of the, the flesh, this family connection that he makes with us. To John, holiness is being part of God's family. When you think about uh, the, the family of God, there's all these, 
these, all these fun nuances. John 13, 33, and John 21, 3 to 5, Jesus says his disciple, to his disciples, you're my children. And, and then, of course, John himself, the guy who's bringing this idea of family in, he, he begins, First John, with my little children, talking to the believers there. Seeing that this idea that, that Jesus became flesh, it gives us a significant opportunity. We, we have the opportunity to look at Jesus, the God incarnate, the human God. I, I probably should say that differently, but you get what I'm saying. We, we get the opportunity to look at him, and instead of saying he's outside of our comprehension, we get to see his character. We get to see who he really is, and we get to say, I don't like that. I'd rather have darkness than light. We, we get to do that. That's a choice that we, may, we can make. But I'd rather that you look at Jesus and like John suggests in, in John 1.12, that you believe on his name and that you become children of God. Children of God is so much more fun than the alternative. And, and when you think about it, when, when Jesus came to this world as a human, he became our brother, didn't he? Our, our, our sibling. He even calls himself the son of man. And then he says, when, he, when he, the disciples say, how should we pray? He says, this is how you should pray. Our father. He puts himself as one of us, our brother. And, and he puts us with him as a son of God. Isn't that a neat idea? I'd really like that in my life. How about you? Would you like to say yes to Jesus, to believe on his name? Praise the Lord. Can we take it one step further? Because if you, th- if you think about what it means to be a child of God, you have to recognize that Jesus brings us into his same orbit, his same mission even. He came to show the world who God is, a world that didn't understand God. He came to become flesh so that people would understand. And then he says, you're the children of God too. Won't you be God's flesh in this world? What does it mean to put on flesh, to become God's flesh for our our world? I went to this big church, and I'm thinking about um, church culture. So I'm down in California, and uh, it's, I don't know, Tuesday night or something like that, and there's this church, a Bayside church, that has all these these lights on it and stuff. There's a Christmas drive-through light show in the parking lot, huge parking lot. It's like, I don't know, 3,000-something seat church, probably has two or three services, so I guess there's five or 6,000 people attending. And, uh, and so they've got this huge, huge parking lot, and they make this drive-through light show. That's, it's pretty cool, actually. And after you drive through, you can go in t- inside the church. And inside the church, I took a picture, and I texted it to Jeff, and I said, we need one of these at Village Church. <laughs> they have this beautiful Bayside Cafe. It's kind of weird to see the dollar signs up there. <laughs> like you go to church and you pay for your, your sandwich as you go in or your, your coffee or whatever. I didn't have any coffee. Um, I did have a cup of hot chocolate. And I just think, you guys are so generous because if we did a light show, we would not charge for, co- for, for hot chocolate, would we? But it was like, I don't know, I think we paid seven bucks for three hot, hot chocolates. Um, so they, they've got the whole thing going. Probably we don't need that, but this is, this is one of the things they have. They have a few rooms. I think there's four for children, and they're like these big, I don't know, 
big, big rooms, and, uh, and so they have their kids divided somehow. And, uh, but their main focus is their sanctuary. Everything seems to re- revolve around this worship service. Uh, all throughout the church are big banners hanging about um, the, the worship leaders. And I, I'm thinking about the culture of church and what our focus is and our priorities. And it seems to me, I'm not a member there, I have very limited interaction with them. I just drove through the lights. That's, that's all I know about them. So I don't want to make a judgment call about them. But I think it's possible, and, and even a tendency for a big church, and I'll put village church in that mix as well, to make the, the focus of priorities, of energies, of money, of everything, uh, to be the, the worship service on, on the weekend. Everything about what we do is... This, this corporate worship. But I think, I think God's intention for the church, which is not this building, this is not God's church. This is a building that God's church uses. Uh, the, the purpose of God's church is to be his hands and his feet, his, his mouth and his ears. We need to be the listeners for God and the, and the ones that look out to see for God and the ones that go and do for God and the ones that, right? We, we need to be God's body. We are the church. We are God's temple, God's sanctuary. God's sanctuary isn't a place that, that we come to and, and sit and observe while somebody preaches or while wonderful women sing. Right? That, that's not what God's sanctuary is. God's sanctuary is my heart. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so God, I think he's inviting us to be the, the flesh for the world that Jesus was and still is. So I'd like to challenge you. This Christmas, that's not what's supposed to be up there. <laughs> it's supposed to say, how can I be someone's family this Christmas? I don't know. They might get it back there. <laughs> My challenge for you this Christmas season is, is that you become someone's family, someone's flesh and bone, right? That, that you become someone's brother or sister or mother or father. And how, how do you do that? Well, I just want to say there's, there's lots of ways that, that you can do it, but just a few. Uh, think about this. Let's say that somebody is in uh, a challenging situation. Maybe they've lost a loved one. I think of the precious Weeby family. We are God's body, God's flesh, which means that we're their family. Don't we need to rally around them? And there's others that have lost loved ones recently. Don't we need to rally around them? Not just to let the professionals do the work, right? We, we need to be the ones that, that draw close and, and we make sure that they, they've got food and we make sure that they've got the money they need to, to go through this time and we make sure they have the companionship they need to, to deal with the mourning that they're experiencing. This is our, this is our job. This is what God has put us here for. Maybe there's a marriage that's struggling. I know of a couple. Do we just say, I hope you figure that out? No, no, we we rally around them. Maybe we we create a whole system of of marriage coaches so that every marriage in our church becomes a healthy marriage. And any time that there's a challenge, we've got a network, a system to to help them resolve that, that challenge. We need to be God's, we need to be God's flesh 
in this world. I don't know what the, the solution is for anyone, but may, maybe there's a family that's struggling and, and we, we say, let's take the kids for the weekend and let's make sure that those, they have an opportunity to go to that family life weekend to remember uh, marriage conference. Let, let's do something significant to make sure this marriage succeeds. That, that's the kind of thing that God's family would do, don't you think? Um, and then there's, there's the young people in our midst Maybe there's a young person that needs to be launched into a career and those of us that have uh, positions can pull them alongside us and say, why don't you work with me? I'll mentor you a little bit in my, my field. If you like it, you can hang out with me more. If you don't, there's another guy I know. He can mentor you too and you can explore that idea. Uh, we have so many kids that, that come out of our congregation and go into college and they have no idea what they're doing. And we haven't given them the opportunities to explore the possibilities. We can be family to those young people. Maybe they need somebody that can, can uh, l give them opportunities for education that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Maybe they need just the value of intergenerational friendship. But we can be family um, to young people in our church. We can put on flesh. Has Jesus touched you yet? Have you beheld Jesus? Do you believe on his name? Are you a child of God? If so, then won't you, precious children of God, won't you rise up and put on flesh for somebody this Christmas, this coming year, and day to day until Jesus comes? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you, uh, the God of all the universe, the creator of everything, chose to put on flesh. Jesus, we're so thankful that you continue to, to bear our humanness even in heaven. Thank you for being all these things that flesh means to us. And, and we just pray that you would transform our lives by our connection with you and that we can be uh, a little light, uh, ambassadors of your glory to the world. Help us to put on flesh this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen.